had never seen it before. Of course, I've only been sober since I got up this morning. Uh, what you're about to hear are the original 12 steps as written by Bill W. for the original manus- manuscript of our big book. Before it was printed, however, changes were made to soften it a bit, according to Bill W., so that it would not frighten people away. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our directions. I want you all to pay close attention to this because I've never heard it before and it's real interesting. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a way of life which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those, too, who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our story is disclosed in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to follow directions. As some of these we balked, you may think you can find an easier, softer way. We doubt it if you can. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us tried to hold on to our old ideals, and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Remember that you are dealing with alcohol, cunning, baffling, and powerful. Without help, it is too much for you. But there is one who has all power. That one is God. You must find him now. Half measures will avail you nothing. You you stand at the turning point. Throw yourself upon his protection and care with complete abandon. Now we think we can take it. Here are the steps we took which are suggested as a program of recovery. One, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care and direction of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely willing that God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly, on our knees, asked him to remove our shortcomings, holding back nothing. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual experience as a result of this course of action, we tried to carry this message to others, especially alcoholics, and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. You may exclaim, what an order, I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our description of the alcoholic, the chapter of the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after have been designed to sell you three perfect ideals. A, that you are an alcoholic and cannot manage your own life. B, that probably no human power can relieve your alcoholism. And C, that God can and will. If you are not convinced of these vital issues, you ought to reread the book to this point or else throw it away. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Jeff. 
I'd like to ask JBC uh, to come and introduce our, our speaker. JB is our district committee person from the best district in the state of Georgia, District 15. So, JB, if you would please. Thank you, Sherry. My name is JB Cleveland. I'm an alcoholic. But before I introduce our speaker, I would just like to uh, just um, thank Sherry again for doing such a good job. We had a little controversy about sort of overdoing this thing, but uh, so far I think it's been great. And uh, I think the 15th district has a hell of an act to follow in the morning. I just hope <laughs> they, do, <laughs> they do as good as the other two have done. But I think we ought to give Sherry another hand for doing a good job. Today is the first day I've met Poor Boy. Now, I've heard some things about Poor Boy, and most of them have been good. I guess the best thing a fellow told me that you can say about an ex-drunk, do you sober in Alcoholics Anonymous today? But I heard another good thing about him. He said, not only does he make a good talk, he walks the talk. Welcome. Welcome. Everybody, sober one more day by the grace of God, fellowshipping with men and women just like you and trying to follow the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today, by God's grace, I'm sober, and I want to take this opportunity to thank Sherry and the rest of the committee for allowing me to be on the program this evening. This is the first opportunity I've had to come to one of those cluster workshops, and I've enjoyed it since I've been here, and the fellowshipping has been tremendous. I wish I had a recording of Frankie and Bob and Bo and all of them over that conversation that was going on just now. <laughs> Bo told me that he would like for me to try to say something nice about him. And I told him that my sponsor told me one time that, that if anybody ever lets you talk the way you do it, you stand right behind that podium and you look right straight at them people in front of you and you tell the truth. tonight myself. <laughs> and I think if we're enjoying what we're doing, we ought to act like it, don't you? This is not a dead, dull, boring, gloomy program. Thank God AA is alive and well. And it's beautiful. And the only time it ever becomes boring, dull, is when I make it so. To me, it's exciting. The most exciting journey I've ever been on in my life. And every day that the good Lord lets come along, and 
And let's old poor boy get up. It's a brand new challenge to be of God, service to the God of my understanding and try to help other folks that he would have me to help with his power and with his love because I don't have it. And anything that I'll be sharing with you this afternoon is going to be based on personal experience. <clears throat> I found out a long time ago that hearsay won't stand up in court. You know, I was out there this, this afternoon looking up and down these mountains, and I was trying to figure out how many of them I'd run up and down. <laughs> I helped build this highway down here about 50 years ago. And I think every old chain gang they had from that side of Georgia to that side of Georgia, I run out of every one of them chain gang camps at some time or another. That book suggested that we, our stories disclosed on a general way what we used to be like, what happened, what we're like now. And I think this is what I was invited up here to do, and this is what I'll try to do. I cannot tell you how old I was when I had my first drink of liquor. I was probably in diapers. My whole family drank liquor. My old daddy was a moonshiner and a sharecropper. And everybody that lived around us on that farm, they drank liquor too, and we didn't see nothing wrong with it. So I was probably in diapers when I had my first drink. I don't remember, but I do remember the first Coca-Cola I ever drank. I never will forget that. <laughs> About once a week, Mama would send me down the railroad track to a little old country store down there, and we never did have no money, and she'd give me some eggs to swap for something in the store, and she'd always give me two eggs to get some candy with. And I'd always get some candy. And I had an uncle that he was just about grown, and I heard him and some of them boys he run around with talking about going down to that store and drinking a dope. They didn't call them Coca-Cola. They called it drinking a dope. And I never had had a dope and. I thought that must be about the grandest thing in the world. And I asked that man down at the store, how many eggs would I have to have to get one of those dopes? And he said, two. And I got me a dope, and I drank it, and started back up the railroad track home, and it come up a thundercloud. And that lightning was a-flashing, and the thundering was roaring, and the rain was coming down, and I was barefoot-footed hitting about every third cross tire, and I belched. And I didn't know to open my mouth, and it come through my nose. <clears throat> and I thought I was lightning struck. <laughs> well, thank God we can laugh. I love to laugh, and I love to see other people laugh. But when I laugh, I have to remember that one day I cried. How about you? Yes, Lord. You know that big book tells us that if the newcomer could see no joy here, they wouldn't want it, would they? They said they insist upon it. 
He said, why shouldn't we laugh? We have recovered and been given the power to help others. And we're sure that God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. All my life, I always got my needs and my wants mixed up. Today, by God's grace and the fellowship of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, my needs are being met. I'd rather be poor and be happy than to be rich and miserable, hadn't you? And today I can laugh. I've done a lot of inventory work in the last few years. I look at it as soul-searching. I've done a lot of soul-searching. And as far back as I could remember, out on this farm that we lived on, everybody that lived on that man's farm was a sharecropper and a moonshiner, or you didn't live on his farm. And when you would have to have a little something from the store, he had a commissary up there, and you'd go up to the commissary and get it. And many times I'd follow my old daddy up to the big man's house to get a little something. And them poor white folks and them black folks didn't go up to the front door. They'd go around to the back door and knock on the door. And so many times I can remember as a little old boy seeing my old daddy standing there with his hat in his hand at somebody's back door saying, would you please let me have a little of this, a little of that. And that stinking attitude of mine began back then as far as I can remember. Because my attitude then was, I'll never go to nobody's back door and beg you to let me have something. I found all this out in an inventory of the soul section. Uh... I don't, I don't remember how old I was when my old daddy moved us to Atlanta. Somebody asked me the other day, said, Poor boy, I noticed, and when you're talking, you very seldom ever say anything about your daddy. Well, my daddy was a drunk. And if he had lived long enough and have ever known anything about this fellowship, I believe that my old daddy would have made a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous because I believed that he wanted to quit drinking liquor, but he couldn't. And I never will forget the last time I saw my old daddy. I was in prison, my brother was in prison, and he was dying, and they got a court order, and they brought us both back to Atlanta. They wasn't afraid of my brother, but they was afraid of me, and they had us chained together like two mules. And they carried us into this sick room, and I hadn't seen my daddy in so long till I never would have recognized him if I hadn't knew that was my daddy. Because his hair was just as white as cotton, and his little old arms wasn't that big around. And we knelt down and pushed those old chains down as far as we could so that he wouldn't see them if we, we could help it. And I never will forget, my old daddy reached up in his pajama pocket and he pulled out two $1 bills. And he offered one to my brother and he offered the other one to me. And I said, Dad, we don't want your money. We got money. 
And he said, yeah, I want you to take it because he said, I saved that for you. And I've often thought about that. Here's a man that had come down to the end of the line. And this was all he had in this world was $2. And he wanted his boys to have that. That was his estate. And he divided it amongst us. That sure did hurt, but I couldn't cry. It just hurt. So, like I say, I don't know how old I was when my dad moved us to Atlanta. And we moved in a part of the city they called it Cabbage Town. And, of course, everybody down and around Atlanta knows about Cabbage Town. It was then, as it is today, a real slummy era. The streets were not paved. And I think everybody that lived on the block we lived on was a produce peddler or a bootlegger. And every little old boy that I began to associate with was a graduate from some reform school, or he was a candidate for some reform school. If he hadn't been, he was on his way. <clears throat> now, we've all been young at one time or another, even old rawhide back yonder. <laughs> and we know what it's like to be young. We like to be accepted by the people that we're so closely associated with. You are who you associate with. And I'm no different from anybody else. I wanted to be accepted, and so I began to do the same things these other kids did. And I well remember that when some of these kids' dad would buy them a bicycle, my dad was so poor he couldn't buy me one and I'd steal one. And a little bit later on, when some of these kids' dad would get them an old hot rod, my dad couldn't get me one and I'd steal one of those too. So I always had just as much as the rest of the kids, but mine was all hot. <clears throat> Now, they don't do this in Georgia today, but they did back then. When I was 16 years old, they had me up in that Fulton County Courthouse because I found out the law frowned on some of those things I was doing. And I never will forget what that judge told my mama. He said, I'm going to send your boy to the chain gang and let him see what it's like out there, and then I'm going to turn him right back out, and I'm sure that your boy will be a better boy. And, of course, we'd believe anything anybody told us, especially the judge. Now, this was back in March in 1929. And so I went off to one of those old chain gang camps, and I expected to get out that night or no later than the next morning, because that's what the judge said. But it didn't work that way. They kept me four years. And so here, once again, I'm mixing and mingling with the people that I so closely associated with, and wanting to be accepted by these people, I had become a real smart aleck. Now, i got another word for that. You know what I'm talking about. I thought I had all the answers. I hated everything that stood for law and order, honesty, decency, respectability. And that's the condition I was in when I came back out on the streets four years later. And I drank liquor day and night. <clears throat> if it was possible, it seemed like my mama, she was just more than mama. But you know, just like many young men today, I took my mother for granted. And like many mothers, my mother couldn't see nothing wrong that I did. She helped me in everything I did. 
And I could remember so many times when she wouldn't have streetcar fare, and she'd walk in the snow or the rain or whatever it was down to this old chain gang camp to bring me a sack of bull durham smoking tobacco and say, Mama still loves you, and we hope they'll let you come home sometime. But this was Mama. You know, Mama's supposed to do all this. And I didn't appreciate it. And I didn't miss her. I took her for granted until it was too late. Because just a short time after being released from the chain gang in a drunken stupor, one night out on the outskirts of Atlanta, I wrecked an automobile and I killed Mama. And I never got over this for many, many years and a long, long way down the road. I could hear Mama crying and begging me to slow that car down, and I wouldn't do it. I would have smart it. And I put my mama down down in that cemetery. And I lived with that guilt, and it wasn't easy. And then I began to run with some of the worst people in this country. A short time later, I was arrested, tried, and convicted, and sentenced to serve over a hundred years that time. And so I went back to the chain gang. And my only hopes of ever being out again was to run out. And I run all my life, just about it, all over Georgia. I escaped, attempted to escape from every institution I was confined in except the last one. This is when I run from all these camps, state highway camps across Georgia, all the way across South Georgia. Run, rabbit, run. Seemed like I was, a, I was a runner. I run all my life. You know, I see some of these folks out here now, they call it jogging, whatever that is. <laughs> I tell you right now, I was a powerful jogger. <laughs> I've done a lot of jogging. <clears throat> as far as I know, there's just only one other of these fellows other than myself that's still living today. Some of those men were not as fortunate as I was. Some of them were shot down and killed trying to escape. Some of them was killed out on these highways or the streets by all policemen, and some of them went to the electric chair. So my friend, it's very important to me that I share with you this evening that it's by God's amazing grace that this old alcoholic stands up here there and tries to share a little bit of his experience, strength, and hope with you. I violated every prison rule he had. I continued to be a smart aleck. This was a deck back in the days when they used the old stocks and the sweat boxes. And I suppose they whipped me with everything imaginable, and I continued to get worse. Because you don't win people like that. Sometimes people say, well, poor boy, how do you win them? There's a little old four-letter word that says L-O-V-E, love. Thank God for that word, love. Because this kind of love I'm talking about, there's power in it. And that's what makes us such a great fellowship. It's because of this type of love. The identity, the understanding that I find here. And one day I found out that somebody loved old poor boy. And how in the world he could have, I don't know. But that began to make a difference in my life. And this kind of love that I'm talking about, I've seen it move men that you couldn't move with a Thompson submachine gun. 
The federal government built a place over in Tattnall County. We call it Reedsville, which is one of our state penitentiaries today. They leased it to the state of Georgia and gave them 30 years to pay for it in. And the last year that Governor Eugene Talmadge was governor, he taken all the money out of the treasury and he paid the government off. And the next day in the headlines of the Atlanta Constitution, it said the state of Georgia now owns the state penitentiary lock, stock, and electric chair. <clears throat> and I was one of the first convicts to enter that new prison in October 1937. And they locked me in a little cell for eight months until they could open up a rock quarry for incorrigible to go down in Paulding County at Dallas. And I, sh I was shipped over there, and I remained over there in that quarry for three years. But I managed to escape on two different occasions, and they shipped me back to Reesville under what they call a stop order, never to be transferred out again. And I don't know just how long it was after that, but a short time later we got a new warden at Reesville. And out of 2,500 convicts, he picked 10 of us with the worst escape records. And he said, carry these men to maximum security. They'll never come back to population as long as I'm warden. Well, we had a lot of friends and we had a lot of connections. And 30 days later we escaped from maximum security at midnight. We came downstairs and we captured the whole inside of the penitentiary. Now this never happened before and it never happened since then, but it did happen then. We're taking over the front office, the powerhouse, the switchboard, and I walked down through those cell blocks with a market basket full of keys and I turned everybody out that said they wanted to run away. So I let a hundred out. <laughs> And we threw that main switch and we had a complete blackout. All the lights on the inside, the tower lights, everything went out at one time. And there was 25 of us went out those big front doors and taking automobiles off the yard and left. And the other 75 that I let out of the cells went down and broke into the commissary and got all that juicy fruit chewing gum and brown mule chewing tobacco and they didn't want to run away, they just wanted to steal something that's full of larceny. <laughs> and the governor offered a thousand dollar reward, dead alive, for every one of us. And within another month's time, we were all back in jail somewhere. And so they started what they called an eight ball squad. Our heads were shaven, and those old chains and pick irons were welded around our legs. And we were placed out in a stump digging detail, segregated from the rest of the inmates. And every state trooper in the state of Georgia had to come down there ten at a time and do ten days guard duty over this detail that they might know these men anywhere on site. We were not allowed any mail privilege. We had no visitors, not even any lights in ourselves. So many of these men began to break their legs and to break their arms and to cut their heel tendons, known as the heel string. And some of them crippled themselves for life. And so the word eventually reached back to Atlanta and the governor of how these men were crippling themselves. And he picked a group of men to come to Reesville to make an investigation and then report back up to the capitalists to how to stop this. He picked the president of the Senate to speak of the House, a lot of judges, probation officers, newspaper reporters, photographers, 
And one other man that I'll never forget as long as I live, his name was Mr. Wiley J. Moore. Mr. Moore was a millionaire banker in Atlanta, and the governor asked Mr. Moore to head up this group and said, the state of Georgia will back you men up 100% in any recommendation you make. They came to Reedsville, and we were driven out of these old muddy river bottoms into that old dark cell house. And Mr. Moore said, open the door, I want to go in here and talk to these men. And they said, you can't go in there because it's too dangerous. This was the first time in my life that I had ever heard anybody talk about God in a respectful manner. Mr. Moore talked about the God of his understanding, and he said that he was not afraid to come in there. And he wasn't. He came in, and we followed him to the rear of this old cell house, and we sat down in a big circle. And Mr. Moore sat down in the center of this group with tears just flowing down his face, and he brought us a message. I didn't understand that message, but what I admired about that man the most is because he was not afraid. That man was for real. He said, this that I'm sharing with you is not for sale. You can't buy it. And the most amazing thing of all, he said, you don't have to be good to get it. It is a gift. I couldn't understand that kind of talk. But I never forgot that message. He planted a seed in that old heart of mine that day. He said, I'm going to let your hair grow out so you look like a human being. I'm going to take those old stripes and them old chains off of you. He said, I'm going to let you pick any job in this institution that you want. You'll learn a trade that'll be worthwhile to you one day on the streets. There was only one man in that detail that taken advantage of that great opportunity, and he's the only one other than myself that's still living. He did do five years. He was paroled. He's an old grandpa now. He never got in any more trouble. But you know what kind of job I asked for? I asked for a job down in Stewart's department. That's where they got all that meal and sugar and syrup and yeast. <laughs> Anybody out there know where I'm coming from? <laughs> <clears throat> I intended to stay drunk, and I did. Because it ain't nothing. We call it buck in the penitentiary. I hear you call it beer. But I was a professional at making that stuff. I learned how to make that stuff from my old daddy. So I stayed drunk a whole heap. For the next few years, there were a lot of things happening. A lot of them were tragedies, and it wouldn't help me or you neither one to talk about them. But there was a lot of humor along the way, too. And I like to look at the humorous side of life. Most everybody had a nickname. They called me Po' Boy. And I had a little old buddy there, and he had a nickname, too. They called him Hitler. <clears throat> now, Hitler weighed about 75 pounds soaking wet, one of the meanest little rascals I've ever seen. And if there was anybody in the joint that loved that old buck as good as I did, it was old Hitler. And I remember pulling off a bachelor one morning, and old Hitler got drunk, and he got out there in the hallway, and he got arrested on a plain drunk charge. 
And they had him down at the control office, and the warden said, Hitler, where'd you get that buck at? And he pulled his hat off, and he bowed over real humbly, and he said, Captain, you can just whoop this old head of mine till it rattles like a pot of okra if you want to, but I ain't going to say one word against my good friend, poor boy Rice. <laughs> Now, you see, there was a lot of humor along the way, too. I can look back today and laugh about it. <clears throat> Old Hitler swore he didn't sneak on me. He didn't know how they found it out. But then, as many other times, we'd have to go upstairs and eat bread and water for a few days. This is just the way I was doing time. <laughs> but I used this little extra privilege I had of mixing and mingling with the other convicts, scheming, plotting, and planning. And after a while, I got me an old pistol smuggled in there. And I got up there one morning, I was so drunk, I didn't know I was in this world. And I enticed five of those other men to help me. And they were all drunk. And we captured 19 of those free people and had them all tied up in haywire, using them as hostage and trying to go out the back gates with them. I thought I wanted out bad, but I can honestly tell you this evening, thank God I didn't get through those gates that day because I wouldn't have been living today. And anything that I tell you that happened to me, don't you feel sorry for me, because I asked for every bit of it. And so I was stripped off naked, beaten till I was bloody, and I went to the death house. And there I remained for the next two and a half years for safekeeping, right in the shadow of the Georgia electric chair. They very seldom ever used that thing down there today, but back during those years, the state of Georgia was leading this nation in executions, and I had a ringside seat. I was not allowed any visitors, any mail privilege, and of course I had no money. And if I ever got a cigarette during those two and a half years, one of those condemned prisoners gave me a cigarette. Now this didn't make a Christian out of me, but it certainly did change my attitude about a lot of things. So many of those boys were much younger than I was, and they hadn't done as much as I had. But they had committed some crime against society that they had to pay for with their life, and they did. Two and a half years later, they let me come back to population. And I had a thought like this. When I go again, I'll go out that front door a free man. I'll go out that back gate in a pine box. I give up. I can't beat you. And so in my way of thinking for the next seven years, I made what I called a good record. Now, I stayed drunk most of the time, but I stopped trying to escape. I never had made a record like this before in my life, and people in Georgia began to take notice of this. And by this time, we had a pardon and a parole board in Georgia. Mr. Ed Everett was chairman of the pardon and parole board at that time. And he came down there and he told me, he said, Poe boy, said, we feel like you've been in long enough, but you've been too closely confined for too many years to be turned out with the public. You see, I didn't know anything about World War II or anything like that. I had no trade. And as I look back today, that man knew a whole lot more about me than I knew about myself. He said, I'm going to recommend that they send you back out to a road camp and let you mix and mingle with the people out there. And when you get used to being around folks again, then we're going to give you a parole. 
And sure enough, a short time later, they transferred me over here in Cod County, Marietta. They sent me up there on trial. And they told my kin folks that uh, we're going to let him stay up there one year. And if he does good for a year, we're going to give him a parole. Well, I felt like a misdemeanor then. I'd count the months off and the weeks and the days until that year was up, and they sent me a letter and said, stay another year. And that like to broke my heart because I was a real weak individual, and I didn't know how to deal with disappointment like that. And so I became very angry and full of resentment. And I had a thought like this. When my people come to see me on Sunday, I'm going to get what money they got, and I'm going to leave because I very well could have left then. But all these years that I'd been gone, my little old brother and sister grew up, and they had families of their own, and they had all become church people. And I never could understand why in the world they didn't talk to me about God. I guess they thought I was just a hopeless case. And I well remember that Sunday morning as my sister came out there, and I was so angry and I was so bitter at the state of Georgia and I wanted them to feel the same way I did. And they just dropped their head and began to cry, and I didn't know how to fight anything like this. Mr. Moore planted a seed in that old heart of mine down in that old cell house that day. My sister planted another one that day. She said, I know you don't have a God, but I do. And she says, there's a lot of people praying for you that you don't even know. Please, please don't mess this thing up. And let me go back down to the capital. And I owed my sister a whole lot because she had run her legs off for many, many years trying to help me. But then, just like my mother, I had took her for granted. You're my sister. You're supposed to do all these things for me. The very next day, they said, poor boy, you stay in tomorrow. Somebody's going to come get you and carry you down to Capitol. The pardon and the parole board want to talk to you some more. I couldn't hardly sleep on that old bunk that night for thinking about a God that my sister had so much faith in, that Mr. Moore had so much faith in. I like to look at it this way, all down through life at different times, different incidents. There were some little seeds planted that began to sprout and take roots and come toward the surface until one day, thank God, they blossomed out in a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. Sure enough, they carried me up to the Capitol. There's a lot of people up there representing me. I didn't even know them. They're just friends of my family. And they said, we're going to reconsider, and we'll let you know what our final decision is in a 10 days or two weeks. But you know that didn't satisfy me. But I guess it was just about that long when I was paroled, and I'd been in 20 years, one month, and two weeks. And back in those days when you made parole, somebody would have to come pick you up, carry you home, and bring you some clothes to wear. They didn't give you anything. And I never will forget, my sister brought me a sports shirt and a pair of slacks. And that was the first time in my life I'd ever owned a pair of britches with a zipper on them. Now, honey, I'm here to tell you that really turned me on. <laughs> I'd catch myself standing in front of the mirror going, zip, zip, zip. 
<clears throat> That's what I was like when I come home. And I went to live with my sister. And every time the doors of the church was open, my people all went to church. And it was a sort of a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. Now, you can go with us or you can stay here by yourself. And so out of curiosity, I went. And I went for all the wrong reasons. I met a lot of wonderful people, people who wanted to help me. But a person who had lived like I had so long with that wall around me, I didn't trust people. I kept everybody at a distance. You couldn't get close to me, and so I refused the help that was offered me. <clears throat> but there was one good thing came out of me going to meeting. I met a little lady. Her name was Flo. I always say God gives us what we need just when we need it, and I needed somebody then, and he gave me Flo. Because I didn't know how to live in society out here. A short time later, Flo and I was married. We rented some furnished rooms. There's two men in that church got me a job digging ditches for a plumbing company. I'm a good ditch digger. And I went to digging ditches, and me and Flo go to meeting on Sunday. And I stayed with that until after a while. They made me a plumber's helper and give me a dime raise. And I stayed with that long enough, and during this time I was not drinking liquor. And I eventually got one of those little old cards that said that I was a journeyman plumber. And I said, now I can make some money. And I went out to Emory University. I got me a job. And I worked as a plumber out at Emory University for two years. I could just about wear my house shoes to work every morning. And one morning they called me in the office and they said, poor boy, your past is caught up with you. Said this is a big thing in DeKalb County. There's a lot of folks know as Poe Boy. And some of the higher ups have found out who you are, and we're gonna have to let you go. I didn't know how to deal with that. I didn't know how to handle disappointment. So I became angry, full of resentments again. And then that old <clears throat> attitude came back, I'll get even. And that old false pride wouldn't let me go home and tell Flo what would had happened. She would have understood. We could have worked everything out. But every morning I'd let her put that bread and meat in the sack, and I'd cut out like I was going to work, and I didn't have a job, and I didn't want a job. I was angry. I was full of resentment. And I didn't know anything about legalized liquor or beer. And that next morning I walked in one of those honky-tonks, and that's the way I started getting even. And I began to drink that stuff. And it wasn't long until I'd be in such a condition I had too much respect for Flo I wouldn't go home. I didn't want her to see me like that. And I'd just walk the streets of Atlanta all night by myself and cry and feel sorry for poor boy. Poor pitiful and put upon. Nobody understands me. Anybody here felt that way? It wasn't too long until I couldn't go home because the police were hunting me and they were watching my house. And I knew I was going to have to run again and I wanted to see Flo just one more time. And I worked it out with my brother to pick Flo up and bring her to where I was. And we went way out there where South 75 is now in a little old motel we spent the night out there. And that next morning as we walked up to the bus stop, 
And I stood there and I watched Flo get on that bus going back home. I stood there and I cried, Lord, I wanted to go home with Flo so bad I didn't know what to do. And I thought, the most precious thing I've ever had in my life, and now I'm losing that, I've blowed it again. And so I run. The trouble was I carried that problem with me, and that was poor boy, and that had been the problem all the time. And that look in these other states is just like it is in Georgia. And a short time later, the police picked me up in DTs, just as crazy as a bat. They called Atlanta, and they come got me, brought me back over and put me under a $10,000 bond. And my people put up the home, everything they had of a bond to get me back out on the streets, to walk the streets, feel sorry for poor boy, drink liquor. I run again. I went to Tennessee that time. Didn't know nobody up there, just drunk, got on the bus and went up there. Put in jail the first night I got there. I don't know what alcohol did for you, but this is the insanity of alcoholism for poor boy. I was walking up the main street there in Chattanooga one night, one morning about 2 o'clock. Nobody out there on the street but me, and I just hunting somebody to talk to, trying to find some more liquor. Everything closed up. Then I saw those neon lights flashing, fancy wine, liquor, and I said, here's one. But it was closed, too. You just left all the lights on. And so here's a drunk standing in front of that big plate glass window, and I can see them shelves coming right up to the front, and they got half a pint and pints and quarts and fifths. And I hit that glass with my fist just as hard as I could, and it broke all the pieces and fell out all over me in the sidewalk. And I split my hand, and I didn't have sense enough to know I was cut. And I just stood there and filled my pockets full of them bottles and walked on up the street, and I didn't get very far. The police run up there and threw a shotgun on me and carried me back down there. And I lied like a dog. I said, I didn't do it. They said, how in the world are you going to deny something like this with all that blood on you? It's all over the sidewalk. It's all over them bottles. I said, I don't know, but I am, and I did. I swore I didn't do it. And the next morning, there was a city detective who was trying to question me. And I was fixing to go into convulsions. And he didn't want me to die on his hands, and he said, I'm going to do something for you. And don't you say nothing about it. And he went and got me a glass full of liquor. He said, drink that. And that kept me out of convulsions. They kept me in jail five weeks. And the grand jury met and failed the indictment. And they called me downstairs about dark one evening and said, the grand jury didn't indict you. And they opened the door and said, get and I got I thought they'd made a mistake, and I run five blocks as hard as I could. <laughs> and I said, now, them people ain't all that crazy. There's something done happen. And you know, for many, many years, I couldn't understand why in the world those people turned me out of jail like that. Until I don't remember time too good, but it was three or four years ago, I was in, over in Maryville, Tennessee. And I'm meeting over there, and I was talking to a city judge. 
And I was talking to him about this, and he was laughing. He said, Poor boy, said, do you remember something very unusual that city detective did for you? And I said, Yeah, give me a glass full of liquor. He said, You know, I came into this fellowship 31 years ago, and I went to work on the garbage truck. He said, Then I became a city fireman, and then I became a city policeman, and then a city detective. And he said, Today I'm city judge. He said, that old boy that gave you that glass of liquor has already gone on to that big meeting in the sky. But said he was a member of this fellowship. And he knew more about you than you know about yourself. And said he is the man that went before the grand jury in your behalf. And he told those people, said, if you just turn that idiot loose, he'll go back to Georgia, and we won't have to fool with him up here. <laughs> he said, that's the reason that turned you out of jail. So I made my way on back to Atlanta and back to Flo just to get what little money she had, walk the streets, stay drunk, and feel sorry for poor boy. And about that time, an old buddy of mine got out of the penitentiary, and we'd been real close for many, many years. Him and I was going up that four, what they call that four-lane highway then, right near Marietta one evening, about dark. It raining, both of us drunk on an old beat-up Ford. And we had a flat tire, and right across the road was a filling station. So I went over there, bought a new tire, and the man said, pull your car over here in the yard, and I'll put the tire on for you. So here's two drunks trying to get across that freeway, and there was a Thunderbird dealer and his family from up in Ohio was on the way to Florida on vacation. And they run over us and tore up our car. And we jumped out and took theirs away from them. Well, that just looked like the normal thing to do then under the circumstances. You don't throw up my car, give me the one you got. Well, I got news for you. The, frown, the law frowns on that too. And it wasn't so much as what had really happened, but because of our past. They tried me and that old boy, and they gave us 20 more years of peace. And they sent us both back to Reesville. Flo didn't have nowhere to go. She went out to Piedmont Hospital and got a job at working at night from 11 till 7 in the morning. Sleep in the daytime, write me a letter once a week and beg somebody to bring me down to see me every three or four months. I couldn't see no way to live 20 more years in there. If I'd had the nerve, I'd have cut my throat. I didn't know how to pray. Thank God Flo did. And I believe with all my heart a lot of other people prayed for me. And I like to look at it this way. Fourteen months later, somebody, God answered somebody's prayer. Because they transferred me over to Stone Mountain Park where they built a new prison camp. And they sent me over there to put the plumbing in that new prison camp. And when we finished that new prison, the warden had us to install a little chapel out in one end of the mess hall. And he called me out on the front, and he said, Poor boy, i got a different assignment for you every Sunday afternoon. He said, We're going to have a church group from all over this area. They're going to be coming out here and holding services. And he said, I want you to stand by that door there and welcome the visitors when they come in. He said, I'm going to get a bunch of song books, and I want you to lead the singing. He said, I want you to go back there in them bullpens and form a choir of those convicts. (laughs) 
And you know, I all of a sudden I wanted to do what that man asked me to do because these little seeds that had been planted along the way, they were just about ready to come to the surface. But I, I wasn't in no shape to do what he asked me to do. I, I never have believed in straddling that fence. I believe in being what you are. Our program tells us half measure to avail us nothing, and how true that is. I didn't know how to pray, but I found me an altar, and it was an old black burnt hickory stump out in the woods. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. I dropped down on my knees by that old black stump, and I said, God, if there is a God, whoever you are and wherever you at, I give what's left, old poor boy, to you. I ain't going to run no more, Lord. I'm tired. I'm so tired of this old way. Something happened. Since that day, since that hour, I've never wanted to rob, steal, or kill nobody since then. But I want to share something very important with you. He left me an alcoholic. And I hope I never see the day when I think that I'm cured. Because I've seen what happened to some of these people who thought they got cured. You know, I went back in there and I did just exactly what the warden asked me to do. I welcomed the visitors and I led the singing and I formed the choir. And the good Lord sent one of them honky-tonk piano players in there and I put that joker to playing gospel music and formed the quartet. And the warden let me go out in the front yard with a bulldozer and I built a baptizing pool and run hot and cold water out there. Oh, we turned it on. There wasn't no half measure there. You know, them folks in church, they couldn't hardly wait till that Sunday would come, you know, so they could get back out there. <laughs> you ought to have heard some of my singing. <laughs> It's kind of a cross between George Beverly Shea and Piano Red. <laughs> but I enjoyed doing it. I still had that number on the seat of my britches. Flow could come out there and sit in those church services. And I felt different from anything I'd ever felt before. And I like to look at it this way. This God that I talk about don't have to be in a great big hurry about anything. He's always right on time. You know, I did that for the next five years. And one morning somebody said, Po boy, I just saw Flo go around the corner up there with your Sunday britches. It like scared me to death. I thought maybe some of my kin folks had died. They'd got a court order and I was going to the funeral. But that wasn't the case. Miss Rebecca Garrett was still living in, and she was chairman of the party and parole board. And somewhere there between six and seven years, she had paroled me again, and Flo had come to carry me home. We didn't know hardly how to talk to any, each other as we went home that morning. We couldn't hire a lawyer. We didn't have a dollar and a half between us. But somehow or another, we knew where our help had come from. I went back to work at plumbing work for the next three years. And then I got involved with a great big church and a gospel singing group. And we moved around a good bit over the south, singing, trying to sing. Stayed real busy. 
And I'd been on the street for six years, and I hadn't drank. And I'd taken a job as, as a maintenance man at a motel. Now, in the hot summertime, the liquor and the beer flowed real, real freely with all the conventions, Shell Oil Company, Standard Oil Company. And I haven't got sense enough to know I'm an alcoholic. Man, I can drink it or I can leave it alone. And one day I decided I'd drink one of those good old cold Budweiser's like them other boys are doing. My friend, when you read in this big book that this is a progressive illness and that it always gets worse and it never gets better, please believe it. It's so true. It is progressive. Because I drank one of those Budweiser's and I wanted another one and another one. And I kept right on till I got drunk. And when I got drunk, I had advanced so far by this time, there wasn't no turning back. And I was down, drunk, for one solid year. I thought I knew what fear was. Never in my life have I really knew what fear was until the last years of practicing alcoholic. That's when the fear, the terror, all these things set in. Flo didn't know what to do with me. Nobody knew what to do with me. Somebody told Flo, said, put him in Peachtree Parkwood Hospital. And she did. She, I went in there drunk and come out drunk. And we spent all the money that we had, and the insurance was used up. Back in those days, they had a little deal going over at Peachtree Park where they thought they could taper you off. And the first three days you was in there, every two hours around the clock, they'd give you two ounces of 180-proof alcohol and some fruit juice. <clears throat> now, you better believe every two hours I'd be standing at that nurse's station and waiting on my medicine. And then I found that doctor to let me stay on it an extra day because I was a very nervous person. <laughs> and then all those pills they giving me. So I come out just about as drunk as it was when I went in there, and I continued to stay drunk. And from then on, I'd have to go just wherever they'd take me. And you name it, I made the rounds of all of them. The last alcoholic hospital I was in was GMHI. And I'm sure it would have been the same old merry-go-round with exceptions of one thing. On Monday night, they had an AA meeting out there. And they announced on the loudspeaker, we've got an AA meeting out in the lobby if anybody wants to come out here. And so here, once again, out of curiosity, I went out there to see what these cats were putting down. And at the end of that meeting, there was a very dear lady friend of mine who did run a rehab center down in Kanye. She's retired now. She was in that meeting, and she said, I look more like a dead man than anybody she'd ever seen. And she came over to me after the meeting and said, Poor boy, do you want to get sober and stay sober? And I said, Yes, ma'am, I feel God do, but I don't know how. I can't do it. She said, I'm not going to try to tell you how to do it, but I'll be glad to tell you how I did it. Now, that got my attention. Because all my life, somebody had been telling me, you do this and you do that. And I wouldn't do it. But here's somebody going to share with me the way they did it, and that got my attention. 
She gave me her telephone number, and that was the most important telephone call I ever made in my life. I called Sue. She got the little meeting book out and looked up the closest meeting where I was living at in Stone Mountain, which was the Glen Haven Stone Mountain Group, where I'm a member today. My sobriety date is December the 12th and 73. They had a meeting that night, and I went, and I went by myself, scared plumb to death. That old alcoholic mind of mine could just imagine all kind of questions that was going to fire at me, you know. Everything I'd ever been involved in, there was such a... I might, I might have to throw out a question there, I don't know. You ever been convicted of a felony? Well, they asked me that everywhere else I went. And I walked in there that night, and them people didn't care about who I was, and they didn't care where I come from. They said, do you want to get sober? And I said, Lord, yes. He said, you're in the right place. I sat there that night, and there was a discussion meeting. And I heard those guys and gals say, well, my name is so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. And I thought, my God, if this is what an alcoholic is, what in the world am I? <laughs> because to get from where I was to where I saw those people would have been a high step up for me. I said, Lord, let me be one of them. And I saw some people laughing and fellowshipping. And you know this program is by attraction and not promotion. That was some attraction for me. I didn't see any humor in anything, and I had forgotten how to laugh. Now, I know a lot of people coming into this program, they have trouble with that step one. Step two, I didn't. Because that first night in an AA meeting outside of an institution, I decided if this is what an alcoholic is, I wanted to be an alcoholic more than anything in this world. I didn't want to be Cowboy Rice. So I didn't have no trouble with that part of it. And I said, what do I have to do to be like you folks? Now, they know they're a fool, and they know they had to keep it simple. They said, don't drink and go to meeting. If they'd have told me any more of that, see, I wouldn't know what they was talking about, Tibby. And that's what i done. I just didn't drink, and I went to meetings. <coughs> and I'd sit in those meetings, and there was one man in particular, I just fairly despised him. I hated to hear him open his mouth because every time he'd start sharing, he'd say, the big book says this, and the big book says that. And I didn't want to hear what the big book said. So I was very critical of him. But as far as I know, I am the only man in my home group that they ever give a birthday party in six months because nobody thought I'd stay so over a year. So at the end of six months, the night that I was going to pick up my six months' chip, this man that I was so critical of, his little old wife, baked me a cake. And it said, Po oh boy, six months. So I had a birthday party. And so it happened to be the same night they were going to elect a secretary. Now, you know how these drunks go about them elections. <clears throat> Somebody said, well, I nominate Pogwar for secretary. Somebody said, I second the motion. Somebody said, I move that the nomination be closed. Somebody said, I, 
They said, poor boy, you're it. I said, what? He said, you're secretary. I said, now on my own group. <laughs> and I think you must have had it made up because about every two weeks, somebody would come around and pat me on the shoulder and say, poor boy, you know you're the best secretary we ever had. <laughs> I thought I was. I believed it. <laughs> but after a year... See, they knew if I was secretary that I'd come. I'd be, I'd be at that meeting. And I made that year and celebrated the birthday. Then I lost this high job of being secretary and had to come back down and become just a regular AA member. <laughs> <clears throat> Don't drink and go to meeting. Not taking any action whatsoever. And I'm taking credit for all this good stuff. Look what poor boy's doing. And after about six more months, I almost got drunk. Those meetings started getting boring. They started getting dull. And I come as near getting drunk as I have since I came to this program. I didn't want to get drunk, but I knew I was going to get drunk. And I couldn't understand that until I eventually got into that big book and explained it to me. That once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against that drink other than this power greater than ourselves. And here I am depending on self-sufficiency, depending on poor boy rice. Look what I'm doing. And I knew that if I was going to stay sober, I was going to have, some, have somebody besides poor boy rise. I prayed that night sitting in front of a liquor store, and I asked God to help me. I said, don't let me get drunk. The help came. That's been, well, next month will be 12 years ago. That may not have impressed you very much, but it sure has impressed my kin folks. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I have not wanted to drink a liquor from that day to this because I got into the action of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I decided I'd get me a sponsor. And if I had not have got me a sponsor, I don't believe I would have ever tried to work this program and I would have got drunk and died a long time ago. And guess who became my sponsor? This old guy that I disliked so much that I was so critical of. He said, the big book said this, and the big book said that. I went to that old boy and I said, would you consider being my sponsor? <clears throat> he was one of them kind of fellows, he liked me, he had a big old belly, and when he laughed, he didn't open his mouth, his old belly would just jump up and down. <laughs> and I could tell he was laughing. He said, Poor boy, what's the big deal? He said, I've already seen you celebrate a birthday. And now all of a sudden you think maybe you need a sponsor. What happened? I said, Well, my program ain't working too good right now. He said, Oh, yes, it is too. He said, Your program's working real good. 
He said it was your program that got you to our program, and our program is called Alcoholics Anonymous. And if I'm going to be your sponsor, the first thing we're going to have to do is get rid of your program before you get drunk. And he asked me if I was willing to do what he was trying to do as far as the direction of this program. He said, have you ever thought about, thought about an inventory? I said, I don't know how to do that. He said, I know you ain't got sense enough to do it. But said, will you make a beginning if I'll help you with it? See, he kept my legs chopped out from under me. I said, yeah. He showed me what to look for on a four-step inventory. And I got involved in that thing, and would you believe I found some flaws in my personality. <laughs> and when I had went as far with that inventory as I knew how to go, I called him one Sunday morning and I said, I finished my inventory and I want to do the fifth step. He said, run that and buy me again. <laughs> I said, well, I finished my inventory. He said, you got a 12 and 12? I said, yeah. He said, turn to page 50. I turned to page 50. He said, read me what it says down there about middle ways. He said, we'll make a beginning on a lifetime practice. He said, you through yet? <laughs> no. <laughs> Have you went as far as you know how to go? Yeah. Well, bring the inventory and come on over here. And I went over there, and my little wife stayed upstairs with his little old wife, and he had the big book, and I had my inventory. And we went to the basement and locked the door. And I don't know how long we were down there. We talk about the spiritual awakening. There's some spiritual experiences along the way. And I had a spiritual conniption fit on that step five because I talked about some things that I thought I was going to haul off to the graveyard with me. Because when I began to honestly share with this man, and he saw that I was not holding back anything, it became a two-way road. He began to share with me. And some of those things, it wasn't easy to talk about. He was a good, experienced AA member, and he would sense that, and he would come in and share with me. And that would help me to continue on. And when I had got to the point where he said, Poor boy, do you feel like you've done a fair step? I said, The best I know how. Now I want you to get a picture of this. Here's two big old ugly grown men standing up hugging each other's neck and crying. This is a program of Alcoholics Anonymous. That love, one drunk for another drunk. He said, Poor boy, I love you for what you're trying to do. And I said, Man, I love you for helping me. And then on into making that list and making those amends. If I had not have had his counseling and his help, I could have, I could have really lost up some things. And I know it. But that man, he would have lost a lot of help to me. He works for the government. He was transferred several years ago down Jackson, Mississippi. He's still my number one sponsor. I had the privilege of spending some time with him down there recently. I got me a nothing. I'm a firm believer in sponsorship. He got me into this program with the help of God. 
There's been so many good things that's happened to me since I became willing to follow these good orderly directions and to turn my will and my life over to the care of a loving and a forgiving God that I talk about. One of the most major things that happened was about six or seven years ago, I don't remember. I received something that very few people ever receive in the state of Georgia unless they can prove their innocence. I received a full unconditional pardon from the state of Georgia after being out on the streets for 13 years. They gave me a full pardon. Today I don't have a record, not even running a stop sign. Do you know that I'm a registered voter? <laughs> if I just had such enough to know who to vote for. <laughs> so there's a lot of good things that happen. But we all know that just because we don't drink liquor, we don't have problems, do we? They've always happened. They always will happen. But when I live by the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't have to get drunk. And I don't have to get all bent out of shape when these things come along. We have a solution. And this little lady that I've talked about Flo so much, there's so many people in this room tonight that remember little old Flo. Flo loved drunks. She loved a drunk. She loved this program because she saw what it had done for poor boy. And as I'd moved back and forth across this country, I'd care flow everywhere I went. Back in June, we just had come out of Albany, Georgia, and saw we go round up. And the next weekend, we were supposed to be in Jackson, Mississippi, in the state convention. And on Tuesday morning, Flo had a stroke and went into the hospital, and they kept her on one of those life support machines for 15 days, and I lost Flo. And it just seemed like my whole world dropped out from under me. Such a part of me went with Flo. Thank God for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't want to drink. It's not easy for me to talk about this. It never has been since, since this happened. But everywhere that we'd go and when it come my time to talk, Flo would say, Honey, which one of them old suits you going to wear tonight? I said, Well, I'm going to wear that old brown suit. And she had an old brown slack suit. And she wanted to dress just like I was. And she'd always sit right on that front row. And sometimes I'd be at that podium and my knees would get to shaking. And I'd feel like I couldn't go on sometimes and I could look down that floor. And those big brown eyes would be right on me. She believed that I could do it. You can say I'm a nut. 
You can say I'm crazy. I don't care what you say. But I'm just as sure as I'm standing here tonight. And big brown eyes is on poor boy. Because I can feel something. Flo's gone to another country. I'm heading that direction. Lord, I'm so much obliged to you for what you've done for this whole song. I can cry tears of gratitude today. See, you people have given me so much. There's no way in the world I can ever give back what I have received from a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. Everything that I am today is by the grace of God. And everything that I know today that is worth knowing in the way I live today, you people gave it to me. In the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, you gave me my life. And any time that I'm in a meeting, whether it's a small meeting or a big meeting, my heart and my mind is always centered on that new man or new woman that's just coming through the door. Because I remember one day when I was new, and I know the fear that I felt, the doubt that I felt, the suspicion that I felt, I remember how skeptical I was. And so I said in the beginning I was going to talk about personal experiences and I want to share something with you in closing. And this is based on personal experience, which is the best teacher of all times. That the problem we may have today, or that may be out yonder in the future, it is never, never, never greater than this source of power that this old drunk has stood up here tonight and tried my level best to share with you. Thank God. Thank you, people, for letting me share with you.